It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. Show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night. Upon an instrument of ten strings and upon the psaltery, upon the harp with a solemn sound. For thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy work. I will triumph in the work of thy hands. O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. A brutish man knows not, neither does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring as the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. But thou, Lord, art most high forevermore. For lo, thine enemies, O Lord, for lo, thine enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But my horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. My eye also shall see my desire on mine enemies, and mine ears shall hear my desire of the wicked that rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like the plum tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no upright. There is no unrighteousness in him. If, if you'll notice the superscription above this psalm, you'll notice that it says that this is a psalm for the Sabbath. And while most conservative scholars don't believe that the titles, those superscriptions, are actually inspired, they do believe that most of these are, are historically accurate. Um, and so these titles oftentimes help us whenever we're interpreting the psalms. And this is the only psalm in your Bible that's called a psalm for the Sabbath. And so in that regard, obviously, right off the, the bat here, we see it's a unique psalm. This was a psalm the Hebrew people would sing when they gathered together for worship on, on the Sabbath day. Now you might say, well, of course, Pastor, they sang a whole lot of psalms on the Sabbath day. And you'd be right if you said that. Um, but this psalm is specifically identified as a psalm for the Sabbath and therefore must have had some very special place in the Sabbath services of the Hebrew people. Now, we're going to interpret this psalm tonight as an outline on what should occur when the Lord's people congregate. Now, of course, we don't worship on the Sabbath day. Uh, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I gather on the first day of the week. And we call that the Lord's Day. Now, every day is the Lord's Day. We know that. He owns all the days. But on Sundays... Believers gather to worship in the same way, much in the same way that the Hebrew people did in the Old Testament. This is our tradition, a tradition that's rooted in Scripture. And, and it's a very interesting thing. Concerning this psalm, Charles Spurgeon wrote these words. He said, In the church of Christ at this hour, and that would have been in the 1850, 1850s, somewhere around there, he said, In the church of Christ at this hour, no psalm is more frequently sung on the Lord's day than the present. Now, why is that important? That's important because what you have there is a, is a prominent pastor from the 1850s saying that, look, we sing this psalm in our worship services more than we sing any other psalm. Remember, most of them didn't have organs or any instruments back then. They sang the psalms back then. Uh, they had some hymns here and there, but a lot of what they sang were the psalms. And Charles Spurgeon said, this is the one we sing more than anything. This was, in a sense, the victory in Jesus, you know, of, of, of those days. 
And so I think that's very interesting uh, because it shows us but not, that not only was this psalm a very commonplace in the Old Testament for worship on the Sabbath day, but for a very long time this psalm was very common in the Protestant churches that they would sing portions of this together. Now, now there seems to be a misunderstanding among, among a lot of us. We kind of, when we think of the Old Testament, we think that the Old Testament saints, they were just kind of dry, they were just kind of rigid, they were just kind of joyless, you know, they were in that Old Covenant, it wasn't a good thing. But those who believe that really must not be reading the Psalms, because the Psalms are filled with vibrant worship. You read the Psalms and you see laughter, you see tears, you see shouting, you see fear, you see joy, you see singing, you see praise, you you see silence and meditation. Any emotion you could ever imagine, when you're reading the Psalms, you're going to see them there. And as believers, as we read this Psalm, here's the interesting thing. We have more spiritual light than even the scribes who continued to copy down these Psalms. And so as we look at Psalm 92, we look at this psalm, not as the Hebrews did, much in the same manner. But what I mean by that is we look at this psalm with greater knowledge. We look at this psalm in a better way. Because we see this psalm through Christ. Worship is sweeter for us than when this psalm was penned. Therefore, the emotions that you see in this psalm should be even greater in us because we have more knowledge, we have more light, we have Christ. And so let's look at the different aspects of this and and consider that all of these things are things that should be present with us when we are worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day. First thing I want you to see is in verses 1 through 4, there is adoration. There is adoration. You see there, it is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 3 teaches that the Sabbath was to include what was called a holy convocation. Now that's a big word, but it simply means a gathering of worship. In other words, the Sabbath wasn't just a day off. Rest isn't found in merely being idle. Rest is found in the rejuvenating of the Spirit. On the Sabbath day, Israel gathered together to worship because in their mind, worship was not work. Remember, it wasn't like us working five days. Six days you shall labor. And on the seventh day you rest, but in the midst of this rest, there was worship. There was meeting together. You know, at the end of each day of creation, God looked at all of His work and what did He say? He said, this is good, didn't He? This is good. You can kind of sense a satisfaction in that when you read Genesis. But on the Sabbath day, Israel was to stop and look at all that God had done and say, He is good. He is good. Because He's done all of this. They're to find satisfaction in the goodness of God. Now let's consider the type of worship that should accompany the New Testament church service. First thing I want you to see is in verse 1. Worship should be with heart and harmony. Worship should be with heart and harmony. The psalmist tells us, he says, worship is a good thing. In fact, worship is the greatest thing. If you could do any one thing, it's what you you should choose over every other thing. If the Lord said you can just do one thing, you've got to choose one thing, the greatest thing you could choose is, okay, I'm going to worship. The angels in heaven, what are they doing right now? They're worshiping. 
The saints who have died and gone on before us, what are they doing right now? They're worshiping. Even the very creation itself, which doesn't have a voice in the same way that you and I do, the Bible says the heavens are declaring the glory of God, that the whole earth is showing His praise. Worship is so wonderful that really it's the only thing worth doing forever. And we will. Amen? Worship is the only thing worth doing forever. And you know, when you think about worship, worship is very logical. Worship makes sense. Intellectually, it makes sense because God is worthy of worship. We've all been to award ceremonies um, or maybe we've been to some function when, when too much praise was heaped upon one particular person. You ever seen that before? You're there, maybe it's some sporting event or maybe it's something to do with work and they bring some fella or some lady up there and they just heap praise on them. And sometimes maybe we're thinking in the back of our mind, boy, I tell you, I don't, I don't know if she deserves all of this. Amen. I mean, she's done a good job, but my word. And I've been to many sporting banquets because of my son growing up and playing all types of sports. And I've seen far more trophies given out than should have been, right? Everybody gets one. And you're thinking, boy, this is a lot of to do about nothing at all. But listen closely. That is not the case with worship in heaven. No one is rolling their eyes or sighing at the attention that God's getting. They know that He's absolutely worthy. Notice the end of the verse. It calls God the Most High. The Most High. You know, there seems to be some confusion, I think, about our worship services today. We're just kind of inundated with this consumer-oriented worship. That we need to make sure when everybody comes to church that they're happy. But, but what is God concerned about when it comes to our worship service? Is God concerned about social interaction? Is God concerned about us being entertained? Absolutely not. Sunday is the Lord's Day. And, and if we're going to call it the Lord's Day, we ought to treat it as the Lord's Day. And so let, let me be as clear as I, can, as I can. On Sunday, our target audience is God. Our target audience is not the crowd. Sunday is for reaching up. It's not for reaching out. Now, to be sure, we want lost people to come to church. We want lost people to come to church. We want people to feel love when they come to church. But the lost are not to be the center of our attention. The saved are not even to be the center of our attention. Our attention is to be on the Lord. It's good to give thanks to the Lord. And it's good also for that thanks that we give to flow overflow into our songs. This is where the harmony comes in. Now, I want you to notice in verse 2 that, that worship should be in the morning and in the evening. Very familiar language to the Hebrews. Exodus chapter 29, a daily offering. Morning, evening. There was an offering given. Now, um, I'm not suggesting that we have to have a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening service. When I say that, don't misunderstand me. We're not bound by Scripture to have a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening uh, service on, on the Lord's Day. But this tradition throughout the Protestant churches has helped us honor Sunday as the Lord's Day and not just the Lord's morning. And, and it seems that, that many look at it more like, well, it's the Lord's morning, but it's my afternoon. It's my evening. Corporate worship in the morning and in the evening are wonderful things. You begin your day with the Lord and His people. You end your day with the Lord and His people. I've told you many times that I was saved at a Sunday evening service. And I am sure that I would not have attended a Sunday morning service due to my gross sinfulness on Saturday nights. 
But thank God there was a Sunday evening service. And I found myself in that service and hearing the gospel. When we start our day by worshiping God, you know, we're looking forward to all God is going to do, aren't we? We're saying, you know, God will do these things. And when you end your day worshiping God, you're looking back at the day and you're saying, God has done all these wonderful things. It's almost as if in the morning we're saying, oh God, you're going to do this. And in the evening we come together and we say, oh God, you have done this. I want you to notice a word in verse 2. It's the word loving kindness. It's the Hebrew word hesed. Describes God's covenant love. It means strength. It means love. It means steadfastness. It communicates the faithfulness of God to us. And so this great God, this Most High God, has linked Himself to us through this special love. As believers, we're covenanted with Him. And this is His work. And the idea here is that God has a very stubborn determination to love you. A very stubborn determination to completely save you. It's as if God has chained Himself to you. You will not be lost. He will not allow it. And this is important because it relates to the morning and the evening worship. You know, if I'm saved this morning, I know that I'll be saved this evening. If I'm worshiping Him today, I know I'll be worshiping Him for eternity. And that gives us a great freedom in worship. I mean, how can we be free in worship if we're always afraid of desertion? And so this worship, this evening and morning, is is really based on this covenant, steadfast, stubborn love that God has for you. That even if you try to leave, He grabs you through conviction of the Holy Spirit and drags you back. Amen? And I love that about our God. The next thing is in verses 3 and 4. Worship is with skill and thrill. I was really proud of the heart and harmony and skill and thrill and all this stuff I was coming up with, Christina. But it stops here, so don't get too used to it. Amen. Verse 3, Upon an instrument of ten strings, and upon the psaltery, upon the harp with a solemn sound, for thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy work. I will triumph in the work of thy hands. Now let's look at the skill first. The psalmist mentions three different instruments in verse 3. These were all stringed instruments, not easy to play. You'd have to give effort. You'd have to give time to learn how to play this instrument. According to 1 Chronicles 15, 16, musicians were appointed for specific worship opportunities. People didn't just raise their hand and say, I'll do it. People were chosen. Why? Because they had skill. They knew what they were doing. And if a person is leading in the area of music, it has to be taken as an act of worship. There's a couple of principles I want to take from that. First of all, the person playing the music should be saved. They should be saved. If it's leading the worship of others, the person leading should therefore be saved, right? Because the Bible teaches that you can't even worship if you're not saved. You can't worship God if you're not saved. You can only worship God if you're saved. So it then follows that that if I'm going to lead you in worship, that I must be worshiping myself. It was Spurgeon who said, Fine music without devotion is but a splendid garment on a corpse. 
And I know that seems to be this idea. Well, you know, if you want to play the drums, uh, come on up here. You want to play this, come on up here. We don't really care as long as you know what you're doing. That is not the way of God. Could you imagine going to the temple in, in the Old Testament or going to one of these holy convocations in the Old Testament? Did they just let anybody play these instruments? No, they didn't. It was serious. When Eli's sons were found to be involved in ministry, yet involved in gross sin, God brought great judgment upon them. And if God took the temple seriously, which was just for a a, a very short period of time, how much more seriously does He take the church where He dwells, which is for all of eternity, will not cease at all? And I think we need to remember that. There seems to be this idea, you know, if we let the the guy who is sinful and the woman who is sinful play these instruments, maybe they'll get saved. That's not the way to do it. Why don't you do that with your doctor? Well, let's, let's let this guy, let's let him work on a few people and maybe he'll be convinced to go to medical school one day. Would you ever do that? No, you'd never do that. You'd say, we would never trust anyone like that with our life. Well, what about your spiritual life? Who would you trust with your spiritual life? Would you trust the devil with your spiritual life? Who, by the way, was a pretty good musician. Still is, if you turn the radio on. Secondly, the person playing the music should be prepared. Just as the pastor should be prepared when he stands up here to preach, or the teacher in your class should be prepared... Musicians should be prepared. It should be obvious to the congregation that the person who's leading them is taking it very seriously. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a church and they said, What do y'all want to play tonight? What if I came up here and I said, Well, what do y'all want to hear tonight? Give me a verse. Name it. You say, Boy, he should have had that figured out before he got here. Amen? You expect it. And it's the same thing with worship. Worship should be planned. There should be skill. There should be preparation. But now he says worship should be with thrill. Look at verse 4. I will triumph in the work of thy hands. The word triumph literally means I will sing for joy. There's great emotion conveyed in that word there. In verse 4 he says the Lord has made him glad through his works. You know, when you come to church and you worship, you ought to be excited in worship. I mean, as you're worshiping, all you have to do is just think of all the wonderful things God's done for you. God has done wonderful things in your life. Joy is to be associated with worship. And so as you worship, you think about all the wonderful things God has done for you. And you know what happens then? A smile takes over. You sing a little louder. You sing with joy. So there's adoration. The next thing I want you to see is in verses 5 through 8. There's contemplation. O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. The psalmist puts his mind on God, and he puts his mind on the eternal in these verses. I want you to notice, though, that he thinks of the lost. You can see that down in verses uh, 6 and 7. He calls them brutish and foolish. And when it comes to thinking, they're like animals. Look at verse 7. He says they're flourishing. They're growing up like springs of grass. And they think all this is because of them. They think all these good things are happening for them because they're hard workers. God must be impressed with us. 
But you know what they're like? They're like a beast. They're like a turkey on the farm before Thanksgiving. They're strutting all around the yard. The farmer's feeding them more than he's ever fed them. They think, whoo, man, I tell you what, this is a great day. I must be the most important bird on this yard. They stick their chest out, wave their fan at all the other animals in the yard. They think life is good. And then Thanksgiving comes, and they're cut off. Psalmist says that's how the lost are. They foolishly believe everything's okay, but the harvest is coming. Did you know that when you come to church regularly, you think about that? When you come to church regularly, you don't just think about how good God is. When you come to church regularly, you think about the awful state that lost people are in, don't you? And when you stop coming to church, you will very quickly forget about the urgency of salvation for a lost world. When you quit coming to church, you'll stop inviting other people to church, won't you? And if you stop inviting people to church, I'll guarantee you you're not inviting people to come to Jesus either. And so coming to church, it helps us contemplate it, helps us set our mind on things above. Even thinking about the Lord, that the Lord is going to cut off all of these lost people and it's our responsibility to go and warn them and, and get them to come to Christ. But not only does he think of the lost, notice he thinks of the Lord. I love verse 8. But thou, Lord, art most high forevermore. It's so simple, isn't it? And if you think about it, if you look at it, that's the center of the psalm. It says, Thou, Lord, art most high forever. It's like a burst of praise right there at the middle of the psalm. But, but now look back at verse 5. It says, The thoughts of God are very deep. You know, we live in a shallow culture. Very little that we do in our world today is deep. Most of what we do today is social media. And that's not very deep. We spend our day filtering selfies with puppy dog faces. Making ourselves look like we're a puppy dog. With a little filter. And we take a picture and we show it to everyone. And everybody just laughs. And that's the most amazing thing. We spend our time watching cat videos on YouTube. You won't believe what this cat did. Can you believe? Look at this cat. that cute? And we pass hours and hours putting puppy dog selfies on our face and watching cat videos. There's no depth to our culture anymore, y'all. It's just really, really shadow. There's no depth to the shows that we watch on television. There's no depth to the music we listen to. There's not even a lot of depth to the jobs most of us do. But there's a great depth to God. And it's the job of the pastor to open the depths of God up to the church every week. And that's why it's so important to have a pastor who preaches the Word of God. When we open this book and we begin teaching, we are revealing the depths of who God is. And therefore, the heart of the people, the mind of the people is to be engaged in worship. Because when the Word of God is faithfully preached, it will appeal to your mind and it will also appeal to your heart. We wonder and we worship. We learn and we worship. You know, God is, is such a complex being that we could never fully comprehend Him if we just did nothing but study. I want you to think about this. God never changes. God never changes. God's not getting any bigger. But even though God never changes and God's not getting any bigger, we can still never learn all there is to learn about Him. Isn't that a deep thought? 
even though God is not getting any bigger, you could learn about Him from all, for all of eternity and still your thoughts would be lacking of how great and how marvelous He really is. You know, there are a lot of people today and they listen to sermons and they listen to sermons without a Bible open. They listen to sermons without a pen in their hand. And I'm not suggesting that we must take notes on the sermon, but I am suggesting that we must take note of the sermon. We have to be engaged. We have to be focused. We're here to learn the deep thoughts of God. And how can God be magnified in us if we're not learning about Him? How can we learn more about Him if we're not engaged in His Word? Listening in church cannot be casual. Listening in church has to be intentional. I mean, think of the psalmist here. It's the Sabbath day. He's worshiping the Lord. He's thinking about the great works of God. He's thinking about the fate of the wicked. He's thinking about the greatness of the eternality of God. He's thinking about how deep the thoughts of God are. This is a man who is just engaged in worship. When you read this psalm, this is a man whose mind is on the Lord. And this is where our minds are to be when we gather for corporate worship. There has to be contemplation. There has to be deep reflective thought about who God is. Have you ever saw those thought bubbles in comic strips? You know what I'm talking about? They, They pop up above the characters, three little circles, and then a big little cloud. That lets you know he's not saying it, but he's thinking it. I've often thought, wouldn't it be neat if we had those in church? They just popped up over people's heads. Pop, 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 pop. And we just read them. What are people thinking? In church. You know, if that were true, we'd be engaged, wouldn't we? We'd be really thinking about what, 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 what was being said. I guess the biggest thing I should ask is, what would mine be? What would mine be? That, that's a question that helps us examine ourselves. And the last thing I want you to see is there is anticipation. There is anticipation, verses 9 through 15. And in this last section, what you're going to see is a contrast between the lost and the saved. You're going to see what's going to happen to the enemies of the Lord in verses 9 and 11. The enemies of the Lord in verse 9 are the enemies of the psalmist in verse 11. For lo, thine enemies, O Lord, for lo, thine enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. Skip down to verse 11. Mine eyes shall see my desire on my enemies, and my ears shall hear my desire of the wicked that rise up against me. So God's enemies are the psalmist's enemies. When Satan fights against believers, he's fighting against God. We know this. Jesus told Saul that. Saul was killing Christians. The Lord said to Saul, why are you persecuting me? To persecute the church is to attack Christ. To attack the body is to attack the head. That's the idea here. But but what happens to the enemies of the Lord? It says they perish. It says they're scattered. When judgment day comes, they scatter in fear. They're hoping to hide from the Lord. But then the Lord finds them. And then they perish. They're judged. And by the way, that happens every day. Every time a lost person dies, that happens, doesn't it? We're not just waiting for the return of Christ. Every time a lost person dies, that happens. The Lord finds them. But there is an anticipation in the believer concerning the coming of Christ. The Lord's, not the Lord's day, but the day of the Lord. 
And we know when Christ returns, there's going to be a judgment like we've never seen before. And all of history is headed toward this one event, the return of Christ. But all the unbeliever has to look forward to is judgment. That's all he or she has to look forward to. Well, here's the contrast. The believer is completely different. The believer has a whole lot to look forward to. Let's consider what's mentioned in this psalm. There's a strengthening. Look at verse 10. But my horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. Now there's a lot of speculation. What in the world is that unicorn? Some believe it's a rhinoceros. Some believe it's an ox. Some believe it's a buffalo. Some believe it's an animal that, that, that's extinct today. And it really doesn't matter what the animal was because the symbolism is found in the horn. The horn is the symbol of strength. Worship strengthens you. Worship makes you strong in the Lord. How are you strengthened, church? You're strengthened by the Word. Jesus said you can't live by bread alone, but by the Word of God. There's another way you're strengthened. You're strengthened as others help you bear your burdens. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens. How many times have we come to church with a heavy burden and a brother or sister in Christ has taken some of that burden from us? We're strengthened. We're strengthened as we joyfully worship. The joy of the Lord, as Nehemiah 8.10 says, is our strength. You come in here and you worship God in spirit and in truth, not worrying about what's going on around you, but only worrying about what's above you. You worship the Lord and you leave the house of God strengthened. I can't tell you how many times I've left the house of the Lord strengthened. You know, the psalmist says it's, it's like being anointed with fresh oil. And, 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 and don't separate that horn from the oil because oftentimes the oil was kept in a horn, wasn't it? An example of this is um, 1 Samuel 16, 13. And we keep that anointing oil inside that horn. And the idea is the strength comes from the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? You and I, as Christians, have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We've been immersed in the Holy Spirit. We're called to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And I can think of no better way than to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit than to come to church and be filled with the Word and be filled with worship. Colossians teaches us to be filled with the Word and worship is equal to being filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3.16. It's the same thing. The strengthening we receive from the worship services we attend is by the Holy Spirit of God. Now when we come to these services, what do we have to do? Well, we have to eat the Word of God that's served to us, don't we? We have to drink of the Spirit as we worship. And I think we should anticipate that. I think we should really think about that. We don't have to wait to be strengthened until we get to church. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is there's a great opportunity when you come to church, a unique opportunity to be filled with the Spirit and strengthened by the Word when you go to church. And when you do, you should anticipate that. You should say, I'm going to church today. God is going to speak to me today through His Word. I'm going to speak to God today through through worship and through prayer. I'm going to pray for other people. Other people are going to be praying for me. And I think this is where this flourishing comes that you see in verses 12 and 13. Now you remember back the flourishing of the wicked back in verse 7. They flourished, then they were finished. But the righteous aren't like that. They're not like grass 
They're compared to palm trees and cedars. And I want you to notice their position in the text as well. They're in the house of the Lord. They're in the courts of our God. Which means they're protected by Him. God is the great gardener. He is the husbandman here. We're in His courts. And we're flourishing. And listen, while those wicked, wicked people flourish like grass and then turn brown like grass often does, that's not the case with believers because God's plants are evergreens. God's plants are evergreens. doesn't matter what season it is. We flourish. And then there's an enduring. Look at verse 14. They that still bring forth fruit in old age, they shall be fat and flourishing. Even in old age, they're bringing forth fruit. There's no useless saint. Amen? There's no useless saint. And we learn that at church. You take one generation out of a church, and that church will suffer. Amen? Just take one generation out of it, and it'll suffer. When we look around at church, we ought to see gray hair. There ought to be people who are aged and been in that church 50, 60, maybe 70, 80 years. It's like returning to a well. They know there's water there. Amen? They know that's where they need to be and they keep going back there. And the fact that they keep going back there for all those years is proof that God is working on them through this church. And you know, going to church reminds me that no matter what age I am, I've got a purpose. And you might get so feeble that the only thing you can do is pray. You may live that long. But as I've said many times, if you live so long that you become so feeble that the only thing you can do for the body of Christ is pray, then you will find that you have found the greatest thing you could ever do. God enabled you to live this long so you could do nothing but pray all day. Amen. And wouldn't we not see fruit if that was the case? There's so much the aged saint can do in the church. And I think when you read this, if you're an aged saint, you ought to be challenged with this psalm. God says, in your old age, you bear fruit. We don't never say, I've served my time. Amen? We don't never say, well, I've done my part. One of the greatest things about church is serving side by side by another generation. Someone that you could be their grandmother or their mother. And you know, there aren't many places in this world you get to do that. You think about it. There are not many places in the world where you get to serve side by side with a person that you could be their grandparent. Church is really the only place I can think of that on a consistent basis you come to where you could serve alongside doing the same thing that a person who's so young they could be your grandchild is doing with you. And what does that old generation declare? Look at verse 15. They declare the Lord is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in Him. It's as if they're saying, you know what, I've searched the Lord for 80 years and I've found nothing unrighteous in Him. I've leaned on Him for 80 years and He's always held me up. What a testimony the seniors can give the juniors. You know, when Moses finished his writing, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the five books of the law, when he finished his writing, you know how he finished them? He finished his writing with a song and a sermon 
in Deuteronomy 32 and 33. Sounds like church, doesn't it? That's how the old Moses finished. The song and a sermon. May we finish that way too. Amen. The song and a sermon. So here we have a Sabbath psalm. May we take the Lord's day as seriously as this psalmist took his Sabbath day. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word tonight.